Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. You may remember a few months ago, we did an episode about bunkers in the New Forest on the south coast of England. They're auxiliary bunkers. And since then, thanks to many of the messages that you folks have all sent in, we've been looking for some more. We've had hot tips. We've been looking for some more. So thank you for those. And watch this space, as I can say. But as we spent more time with Andy, we just realised he had so many more stories about what post-war resistance would be like in Britain if Hitler had launched a successful invasion. And so he's back on the podcast, folks. There's a really powerful perception that Britain was ill-prepared and it was weak in 1940, but that simply doesn't reflect the reality. By the end of that year, there were thousands of highly secret, highly trained civilian volunteers who would, in the event of an invasion, create havoc. There were thousands of men ready to take their secret underground bunkers, the length of the country, who would then come out at night and attack invading troops from behind. There were also thousands of men and women who were trained in observing those enemy troops and passing information quickly via runners to other civilians operating wireless sets, uh, giving up-to-date critical information to those in command. Even the much-maligned Home Guard, known as Dad's Army, had secret guerrilla sections that were ready to take on the enemy. And then, if the worst happened and Britain was defeated militarily, there were other groups of civilians operating at even higher levels of secrecy that would form a post-occupation resistance. Andy has come across new secret groups, one in particular called Section 7, who are only just coming to light now, as family members recall old stories told by parents, which seemed strange at the time, but Andy now thinks pointed to clandestine operations. We now know that there were people stationed around the UK, some hiding out in caves, others in the back of shops. They were poised for a German invasion. They were taught how to derail trains, how to make Molotov cocktails and throw them into enemy tanks and other vehicles. They were taught how to garrote and how to engage in unarmed combat. So to tell some of these stories, I've got Andy Chatterton, author of Britain's Secret Offences, back on the podcast. Enjoy.
It probably makes sense to start with Hitler's, well, ambition to invade Britain and actually why it was doomed to fail from the beginning. After the fall of France in June 1940, practically all of Western Europe was under Nazi occupation. Only Britain remained defiant. And after the stunning German military successes in Europe, Hitler was keen to keep up the momentum and he wanted to invade Russia to the east. His preference was definitely for an armistice with Britain rather than attempting to launch a full-scale invasion of the island. Britain would retain its empire, it would remain a wealthy country in exchange for a suspension of hostilities. And this, Hitler hoped, would allow the Germans to free up huge numbers of men and material for redeployment to the Eastern Front. Behind the scenes as well, German commanders doubted whether Germany could overcome the challenges and successfully launch a cross-channel invasion. But Winston Churchill, as you know well, was not exactly a fan of the truce plan. Hitler might have assessed that the British situation was hopeless. Churchill believed there was hope. He was determined that Britain would fight on, and a truce, an end of hostilities, would offer no better terms, Churchill felt, than sticking it out to the end. Once it was clear that a negotiated peace was off the cards, Hitler doubled down on knocking Britain out by force. A vast invasion by sea and air was planned for September of 1940, given the codename Operation Sea Lion. Its aim was nothing less than Hitler's complete domination of Western Europe. The infamous Directive Number 16 that outlined Hitler's invasion plan stated that the operation intended to, quote, eliminate the English homeland as a base for the prosecution of the war against Germany, and if necessary, to occupy it completely. So the wheels were put in motion. The Germans began assembling a vast ramshackle armada at places like Calais and Rotterdam. By early August, the German Navy had rounded up something in the order of 1,900 barges, 168 merchant ships, nearly 400 tugs and trawlers, and 1,600 motorboats. The plan was this motley fleet would ferry the first wave of nine German divisions across the Channel to land along a stretch of coastline from Ramsgate to the Isle of Wight. Now, to put that into perspective, a typical German infantry division consisted of around 19,000 men, 1,600 cars and lorries, 1,000 motorbikes, accompanied by an array of heavy weapons, artillery, and perhaps a few dozen tanks. Most surprisingly, those divisions also relied on perhaps 4,000 horses, a reminder that the much-vaunted German army, despite its mechanised reputation, was heavily reliant on old-fashioned horsepower throughout the war. So this wasn't some small-scale amphibious assault like the British commander raid on Saint-Nazaire. The Germans were planning for a substantial invasion here. They wanted to land tens of thousands of men on beaches like Pevensey, where William the Conqueror had landed in 1066, and then push inland. They wanted to circumvent London initially, wipe out all elements of resistance in southern England before besieging the capital from the west and north. But first, they had to achieve a few key objectives. Admiral Eric Rader was suddenly given responsibility for, well, an unenviable job. <laughs> he had to try and find a way to preoccupy the Royal Navy in the North Sea or the Mediterranean that made it unable to interfere with the crossing. This was no small task. The Royal Navy was still the most powerful fleet in the world, and Germany's navy had been decimated by the fighting thus far in the war. To help his navy out, Hitler had decreed that the Germans needed to achieve total air superiority. This meant they had to incapacitate the RAF as an effective fighting force, and then they could keep the British Navy in check. The job of dealing with the RAF fell to the commander-in-chief of the Luftwaffe, Hermann Göring. 
Neither Raider nor Goering had any real enthusiasm for the invasion to start with. And in truth, Germany was woefully unprepared for an operation like this. Staff officers hadn't had time to draw up plans. Troops hadn't been trained for crossing the channel or amphibious warfare. The whole invasion relied on converted civilian vessels that were, were likely to flood and sink, frankly, before the men could get across the channel and disembark on the British coast. Telling Hitler where to stuff it, however, was not an option. And so Goering and his Luftwaffe started a major air campaign over southeast England in particular. The Battle of Britain began. Luftwaffe bombers hit everything from factories to airfields to communications outposts. They were escorted by German fighter planes that were supposed to hinder RAF attempts to intercept those bombers. And that onslaught did stretch Britain's resources almost to breaking point. But this is where Hitler's invasion plans really unraveled. Against stiff odds, the outnumbered pilots of RAF Fighter Command held out against the Luftwaffe, thanks to a highly effective air defense network based on rapid intelligence collection, which was afforded by a chain of top secret radar stations, as well as a huge network of observers on the ground, anti-aircraft defenses, and of course, fighter aircraft like the Supermarine Spitfire and the Hawker Hurricane, which gave the British a key edge. This complex defensive setup was known as the Dowding system. You'll have heard me talk about it on numerous other podcasts. Go and check them out. And it was a huge reason for Britain's success in the Battle of Britain. The Germans also failed to stick to a coherent strategy. They couldn't decide on a hierarchy of targets, what to concentrate their force on. Seemingly by accident, they dropped a few bombs on civilian areas in London at the end of August 1940. The British responded by bombing Berlin. Hitler was so outraged, he ordered Goering to focus his attacks on Britain's major cities, in particular London. And so for months after that, the bombs rained down on Britain's capital, as well as Coventry, Liverpool and other urban areas. These attempts to break Britain's fighting spirit, frankly, only relieved the pressure on RAF Fighter Command, who used the time to rebuild, recover and launch stinging attacks on these armadas of German bombers. By mid-autumn, it was clear that Germany had failed. The RAF was undefeated. Germany would not win air superiority. And with defeat in the Battle of Britain, it seems that all enthusiasm for Operation Sea Lion fizzled out. Without that air superiority, the invasion would just be impossible. Not even Hitler would send thousands of men across miles of open water to be strafed and bombed by RAF pilots and shelled by British naval ships at will. Throughout September, Hitler kept postponing Operation Sea Lion. Then by the time winter rolled around, he cancelled the invasion entirely. His focus was now on the east. His campaign against Britain was now limited to blockade using his U-boat fleet. In the years since, historians have debated furiously about Operation Sea Lion. Did it ever stand even a chance of succeeding, even if the Luftwaffe had won the Battle of Britain? Was it a faintly realistic prospect? We're in the realms of conjecture, but what we do know for sure is that the German failure to conquer Britain was their first and one of the most important defeats. It enabled the UK to act as a forward operating base for the later invasions of the European mainland. And it was instrumental in bringing about the eventual victory of the Allies over Nazi Germany. Andy, great to have you back on the podcast, buddy. Yeah, really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Exactly. This time, this time you're in the comfort of your own home rather than out on the <laughs> doing the hard, hard yards in the new forest. I know, good though, wasn't it? Really, it was good. so fun. It was so fun. If you haven't listened to it, folks, go back and check that podcast out. Right, let's talk about 1940. We have the, the sudden and unexpected collapse 
of the French army, the, the British, the Belgians, everyone on the continent, the Western Allies on the continent, Hitler and his Wehrmacht are in the Channel ports, the thing that Britain has fought so many wars to prevent, which is a, a powerful continental aggressor dominates the Channel ports uh, with the coast of England close to them. What's Hitler's plan here? He, we don't know how serious it was, but he did certainly start the planning process for an invasion of Britain, didn't he? Oh, yeah, he absolutely did. Barges were being sent to the Channel ports. Certainly training was happening. Um, they were massing ships in, in all those coastal areas. So, I mean, obviously, Hitler's quite a difficult chap to judge as to how serious or not he is. But certainly preparations were being made. And from a British perspective... We didn't expect the sudden destruction of the French army, the biggest army, the largest army in the world at that time. And so anything from our perspective was possible. So whether Hitler was preparing or not, certainly from a British perspective, we needed to set up either an anti-invasion or, you know, in worst case, which we're talking about today, a post-occupation resistance ready for that worst case scenario. Yeah, so it's interesting that our perception of this period is of sort of scrambled, hastily concocted, amateurish defences. But you've made it very clear to me that actually this planning process was incredibly thorough, incredibly effective. And in fact, the the British government opted for some very, very robust methods to defend these islands. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And it goes back as far as kind of 1937, 1938, and perhaps even before that. But certainly from then, SIS or MI6 had set up Section D which were going out to the country surrounding Nazi Germany, helping them understand what a resistance might look like. So, for example, they're in Czechoslovakia, as it was, talking to the Skoda Works about how they can destroy their factories in the event of a German invasion. Or they're talking to Poland, they're talking to the Nordics. But all this came a bit too late, because by the time they were there and talking to these guys, the Germans were kind of up and ready and already in those areas. But the British government, or the British secret services and the British military through military intelligence research, had already started to think about what this stuff looked like, had already started to prepare, which kind of goes against our whole perception of Britain, particularly in the late 30s, which is all about appeasement, which is all about giving Hitler what he wanted. But actually, in terms of this, we were very much on the front foot. And this is where the auxiliary units come from. This is where the special duties branch comes from. And it's also where this Section 7, which we're going to talk about today, it all originates from this pre-thinking. What do we know about... Hitler's invasion plan, Operation Sea Lion. Well, I guess we know it started because that's the bit that did happen. It started with the attempt by the Luftwaffe to gain air superiority, air supremacy over Britain, if perhaps just even Southeast England, over the Channel, which would allow a kind of air umbrella for his barges and his rather strange and eccentric looking fleet to carry his troops across the Channel. So um, we're guessing they would have tried to land at the nearest point. Would they go across the Straits of Dover? Yeah, I think Straits of Dover, I think some parts of East Anglia and the southern coast particularly uh, would have been in danger. I think the, the whole nature of Operation Sea Lion was that he had the Air Force, the Navy and the Army coming up with three separate plans and each of them had their obviously their own priorities and objectives. So I think the Navy saw the Army's plan uh, they thought was far too wide and large and they were trying to narrow it down to a more or less the Straits of Dover and some of the southern coast and then kind of push inland from there with supplies coming in, which is... You know, why from a perception that we have now, the Battle of Britain was so key because you needed to get rid of that air cover that would allow them to keep the ships and the supplies coming in. And also the Royal Navy's role in all of this as well. Operation Sea Line was a big mess in terms of preparation because Hitler was doing his usual splitting forces and getting three separate plans together um, and 
pinning people against each other. But from again, from our perspective, we didn't really have much insight into that. And from what we'd seen in the Low Countries and France, it seemed like Germany had pulled together almost the perfect force of fast-moving tanks of planes working in association with the army, all this stuff that we had just started to kind of learn about. But it was a really scary prospect from Britain's perspective. So we had to prepare for that worst-case scenario. So Operation Sea Lion never happens. The German invasion is not attempted. The RAF win the Battle of Britain. The cost of crossing the Channel and still the world's largest navies up, the Royal Navy's there waiting in Orkney, ready to pounce. Just for many, many reasons, Operation Sea Lion never happened. And indeed, Hitler was obsessed with the war in the East. But let's today, let's imagine it did happen. You've done so much work in this area. What if those German amphibious forces had landed on the beach, spearheads starting to push inland? What could we expect from the British in terms of resistance? So I think much more than the general perception is. For example, General Ironside, who was CNC Home Forces, gets a terrible press at the moment with his pillboxes and stop lines. I think he's been really hard done by. I think um, after Dunkirk, we were struggling for manpower. We were struggling for arms, but particularly we were struggling for mobility. And so Ironside placed his tanks, the most of his mobile reserve in more central parts of the country. And then he created these stop lines. It's almost like an Iron Age hill fort where the defences push the attacker in the direction you want them to go. So the stop lines were there to push the attacker to in the direction you wanted to go, and then the mobile forces would come down and attack them there. You've got a lot of regular troops still capable of fighting. We've got a lot of support from the Empire, so lots of Canadians, Australians and Kiwis um, in the country ready to fight. You've got uh, the LDV, you've got the Home Guard, as they came to be known, who actually were armed, particularly in those key southern and southeastern counties, they were armed incredibly quickly. And that whole perception we have of basically Dad's army, of really, really old, poorly armed men, just isn't true of the Home Guard. They would have actually, for their role, been quite an effective force. And then under that kind of very frontline forces, you've got Things like the auxiliary units, which we discussed when we were having our jaunt around the New Forest, these guys would have disappeared to their secret underground bunkers and come up and and wreaked havoc for a two-week suicide mission. And then you've got the special duties branch who were there on the streets spying on the German army as they came through, radioing this information through to GHQ or or local commands to allow them to make informed decisions about counterattack. So we were the fact that we had the channel gave us this opportunity to prepare much greater defence, despite the limited resources we had, I think we'd have been really effective. And certainly from the AUKS units and and special duties branch for a limited time, but they really would have made a difference to any attacking force. So you've got 250,000, what we now call the Home Guard. And then you've got these other networks we've talked about a lot in that previous podcast, the auxiliary units who stay behind to carry out sabotage, assassination behind German lines as the Germans are advancing. And you've also got this network of intelligence. So what the radio sets, which are hidden, like the one we found evidence of, those are radioing what troop movements, all that kind of stuff, back to the British High Command. Yeah, correct. Exactly. So we were not only did we have the regular troops, the Home Guard, who were taking on the German army face to face, as it were, in kind of set piece battles, but also you've got this prepared and secret anti-invasion forces that were destroying the supply chains coming up to meet the spearhead and and allowing us, as I said, to make informed decisions about where we should counterattack. Because unlike France and the Low Countries, we should have some knowledge of where the Germans were going, which direction they're travelling, how many there were, what regiment it was, what vehicles they had, what arms they had, all that stuff that would allow us to then be much more 
effective in countering them, unlike the kind of carnage that we saw in mainland Europe. And these units that are staying behind are, are trying to slow down the German advance, trying to disrupt the German advance. The other thing they're doing is not just focusing on Germans, but they're trying to take out collaborators as well, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. If you think about the auxiliary units, their task was to, in a two-week window, do as much as possible to slow down that advance. So anything that would make the Germans pause, they would get rid of. And that includes British collaborators. So that might include former members of the British Union of Fascists, for example. There's a auxiliary patrol near where I live in Devon, which is basically just a few miles away from the house of a very high-profile family of British Union Fascist uh, members, uh, the Cottons. They had von Ripchoppen over during the late 30s when he was ambassador to Britain. They'd met Hitler personally in Germany. They'd been arrested at the start of war, but then released and they were still living in Branscombe in the house. And, and this patrol's first task would have been to go and assassinate these British Union fascists. And it's not just those, it's anyone that was providing, you know, food or petrol or whatever it might have been. As soon as they got wind of it, they would have assassinated these people. So that's going on behind the German advance the regular army and the home guard are trying to slow down that German advance, fighting conventionally on the battlefield and, and retreating slowly via these so-called stop lines, these pre-prepared fortifications, you know, retreating north. Was it like in the Soviet Union, was there a plan to smash up factories or things that might be useful for the Germans as they advanced? Was there a plan to kind of relocate that industrial production or to destroy it? Yeah, absolutely. So the home guard, for example, factories often had their own home guard units. Um, so... Austin Ruddy, for example, historians done some great research on this. So they seem to have had key holders, secret key holders, they were called. And their role as the Germans approached the factory was to take the key components of the factory, either destroy them or bury them for when there was liberation. So, so absolutely, they would have taken that stuff away. Really importantly, Home Guard commanders had lists of petrol stations in their area that the Home Guard, again, secretly, would go and dismantle a petrol station, bury the stuff in a field somewhere, and then, optimistically, as the British came and counterattacked, they'd place the equipment back in the petrol station to allow the British to fill up. Because in France and uh, Holland, as the Germans flew through, literally, you got panzers parked at French petrol stations filling up, which allowed them to carry on. They didn't need to rely on their supply chain so much. So Britain had already started thinking about this. And it's often the much maligned home guard that had these kind of more secret roles to dismantle factories, to blow up factories, to dismantle petrol stations, to ensure that the Germans couldn't do what they'd done in France. We learned the lessons of the Blitzkrieg really quickly, much more than we're given credit for. So because this is all happening a mere matter of weeks after that Blitzkrieg had so shocked the British and French in particular in France, the Low Countries, it shows a remarkable agility on behalf of planners. Yeah, huge amounts of agility and ingenuity. I mean, it's, and I think just our perception of this period of time is just so coloured by the likes of Dad Army, but also by the fact that Dunkirk happened and we got pictures of men coming back on ships, the miracle Dunkirk, and, and without arms, without, you know, looking fairly miserable and defeated. But actually we were hugely prepared from both a military but also from a secret civilian perspective to counter any German invasion. You listen to Dan Snow's History It. There's more coming up. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit... I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? 
And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So the German invasion would have faced well-motivated troops defending their homeland it would have been sabotaged by these units, these auxiliary units and special units that we've been talking about. The British would have been better at destroying infrastructure, at knocking over bridges and destroying factories and fuel dumps. And we should say also, the Royal Navy, which massively outnumbered and outclassed the German Navy, would have been carrying out astonishingly effective attacks on that German logistical trail heading back across the channel. So they, the Germans may have found themselves cut off whilst fighting in Britain. There were lots of reasons why that invasion might not have been a success. Yeah, huge amount. Yeah, and the Royal Navy, undoubtedly. I think even, even if we'd lost the Battle of Britain, for example, the Royal Navy, even under constant air attack, would have had a huge impact on the Germans' ability to get back and forth the channel with supplies. They ran a war game in the, in the 1970s where they had German generals who were still alive and British commanders, and they ran it. And essentially, the, the Germans got a bit of a foothold in the southeastern corner, but then the Royal Navy came in and destroyed everything, and they made very little progress. So taking it from now, taking it with hindsight in mind, Operation Sea Line was never likely to succeed if it was to be attempted at all. But of course, in the summer of 1940, we, the British weren't to know that. And you couldn't take that risk, of course, either. No, absolutely. Hey, correct. In the unlikely event that it had worked, Britain had been occupied. We'll come on to the British resistance in a second, which you've done a huge amount of work on. We can theorise about what it might have been like for Britain. There would have been significant persecution and repression, British Jews in particular, Roma, socialists, as we saw on the continent. It would have been an astonishing, well, bordering on genocidal regime here in the UK. The Gestapo had already compiled a list of key people in Britain that were to be arrested immediately, including, you know, Churchill and the high profile members of the Jewish community. So it would have been utterly brutal and it would have been exactly the same. And, you know, as we saw in the Channel Islands as well, that is a part of Britain that was occupied. And actually the pictures of British bobbies standing next to German officers is quite galling, but something that you would have seen throughout the country. And, and as in the Channel Islands, you would have had those people that that would have assisted the Germans, that would have just got on with their lives because quite understandably, you don't want to risk being shot or your family taken away or whatever. So it would have been very similar to what we've seen in the continent and in the Channel Islands, utterly, utterly brutal. But equally, some people uh, who were willing to risk everything and, and resist. So let's now talk about, we talked about those who would have resisted the invasion. Let's talk about people that would have resisted the occupation. And this way you blew my mind. There were actually plans, not only for forces to slow down and try and defeat the Germans, but there were plans in the summer of 1940 to um, keep sort of a, an idea of Britain alive, even in the event of occupation. Tell me about that. So I volunteer for a group called the Coles Hill Auxiliary Research Team, which we talked about last time. 
So we researched the auxiliary units, which we know are very much on the coastal counties, on the vulnerable counties to invasion. But for years and years, we were getting information from all parts of the country saying, oh, my granddad or my grandmother was definitely in New York's units. They were trained in unarmed combat. They were trained in explosives. They had hideouts where they were to come out and blow up you know, German infrastructure. But this was coming from Leicestershire and Nottingham and Liverpool and all over the country where we know absolutely there were no auxiliary units, which was confusing to say the least. And then in 2010, the official history of MI6 came out by a chap called Keith Jeffrey. And in that book, there are about three paragraphs unreferenced about Section 7. Now, Section 7 is a MI6, a SIS group that was there purely as a post-occupation resistance. So after Britain had been defeated militarily, this group would have become active. And it's MI6, i.e. the Foreign Secret Service, rather than MI5, because of what they were doing in mainland Europe. They were taking what they'd learned in mainland Europe and implementing it in the UK. And it was so secret, this group, that MI6 didn't tell MI5. They weren't very keen on the military knowing. And so all the members that they recruited all signed Official Secrets Act. And as we'll go into, we know less than 20, but has the potential... Because this isn't just the coastal counties, it is the coastal counties, plus all of England, certainly, Wales. That's a huge amount of people potentially involved, possibly tens of thousands of people who signed the Official Secrets Act and almost all of them went to the grave without telling anyone anything. Who are the ones that you have managed to talk to and have they been willing to um, to finally break their silence? Yeah, so it's really interesting. So from the Keith Jeffrey official history thing, we know that there were three guys in SIS, MI6, uh, who were kind of leading this. It was a chap called Valentine Vivian, who was head of Section 5, uh, which was counter-espionage. There was a chap called Richard Gambier-Parry, who was part of Section 8, which was the communications, so the wireless part of SIS. And also a really mysterious guy called David Boyle, who was head of, or part of Section N, which was something to do with diplomatic mail. But these guys were in charge of the recruitment and training and the establishment of this resistance group. And they went around the country. So they started in six counties in July 1940 in Norfolk, Suffolk, Sussex, Somerset, Cornwall and Devon, where they did a trial of these wireless sets and they proved to be really successful. And then they recruited everywhere in the country. It's hard to imagine just how wide this network was. For example, we've got a chap who came forward in the early 2000s, called Peter Atwater. Peter is a really good example of the type of people or children that SIS were recruiting for Section 7. Peter was 14 when he was recruited for Section 7. He was an ARP messenger uh, and he was part of the uh, Air Training Corps as well. And he lived in Matlock in Derbyshire. His role had the Germans occupied Matlock was initially as an observer. He was to walk around Matlock and gather information on the occupying forces. He would then take this back to his cell leader, a chap called Mr. Topless, uh, who was a draper. At the back of Mr. Topless's draper's shop was a fake cupboard. Uh, you go through the fake cupboard and in the back is a, a room with a wireless set in. And there are two female wireless operators called a Mrs. Key and a Miss Swan. He would then pass this information on to them. They would then radio this information about the occupying forces to either a unoccupied zone. So they thought that Britain would be like France. It'd be an occupied zone and an unoccupied zone, with Scotland most likely to be the unoccupied zone, with some kind of Petan, Vichy-like government in charge there. Or the information, because Richard Gambier-Parry was involved, the information 
from these wider sets might have been powerful enough to eventually end up in Canada with some kind of government in exile. So his role was to do this. Incidentally, in the under the table where the wireless set was, was a grenade with the pin stapled to the table. So if the Germans had somehow found out that this was a resistance cell, broken through and found Miss Swan and Miss Keith in the back room, they could have pulled the grenade very easily, thrown it over their shoulders, grabbed their wireless set and escaped to carry on. Because this is about long-term resistance. So the auxiliary units and special duties branch had that very set window to disrupt an invasion. This is much more like the French resistance where you can move you have kind of portable wireless sets and, and move quickly and keep going for as long as possible. Peter also was responsible for finding a, a room or a building in which people on the run from the occupying forces could be passed on. So rather like the escape lines in France, in occupied Europe, where an allied airman was shot down, if the resistance got hold of him, they would pass him on from house to house to house, um, from safe house to safe house, to try and get him back to neutral territory from where he can then make his way back to Britain. It looks like Section 7 were setting up an escape line for enemies of the occupying forces to try and get them out to an unoccupied zone, presumably Scotland or maybe Ireland. So that was being prepared. He had to meet other boys of his same age, in Birmingham, I think they met. Um, each of these chaps were part of the escape line, so they knew who to pass them on to. So it looks like it was carrying up through the Midlands and up through North. And when they met, they had to talk uh, or include a word in their conversation to ensure that they weren't being followed or that they weren't under duress. Uh, so what better subject to talk about than the weather? So Peter had to include the word ice in any conversation he had if he was meeting with one of these guys under occupation. And another thing Peter was uh, said that a bit later on he was taught was was how to be a sniper. So a 15-year-old uh, was being taught, and he used some very specific terminology here. He was, he was being taught, he said, by terrifying ex-First World War NCOs how to be a sniper. Peter was 15, but as a father, that is a terrifying prospect. And his parents had no idea what he was up to. And it wasn't just young boys, it was girls as well. Correct, absolutely. And a lot of what Peter said there, you can take with a pinch of salt because it's one guy telling you. But then, um, as I wrote the book, families from Southampton and Leicestershire were telling me exactly the same stories about their grandfathers, in this case, being taught by terrifying NCOs using very similar terminology. And then, just before I published, a family got in touch um, who's grandfather William Hughes was a sharpshooter during the First World War and he said in Liverpool he was teaching resistors and he used the word teenagers in unarmed combat and how to be snipers in the tunnels underneath the Mersey. So suddenly one man's story is then confirmed by multiple other independent stories across the country. But you're right it wasn't just um, men and boys being recruited and this is a key difference with Section 7 and SIS, that they were actively uh, recruiting women in combat roles and teaching them how to use explosives, how to create Molotov cocktails, how to derail trains, and most importantly, how to become honey traps, how to use the garrote. And I know that you've had podcasts here talking about some Dutch uh, women who were famous or infamous for their roles in dispatching German officers and German soldiers. Exactly the same as being done here in preparation for an occupation. So there's a fantastic example. A lady called Jennifer Lockley got in touch with us saying that her mother was in the auxiliary units. We know, uh, and that she was from near Leeds. So there's two things there. There's no women in the auxiliary units and there was no auxiliary units in Leeds. So 
we knew something was going on. So we talked to her about Section 7. And then it seems that on her deathbed, um, her mother, Irene, called her in and said, I've got something to tell you. Jennifer thought she was going to be told that she was adopted or something. But actually, her mother said that she was part of a secret resistance cell in a village near Leeds. She was in a cell with her father, her uncle and her two cousins. And they're based in a cave. And she was taught how to use, as I said, Molotov cocktails, how to use the garrote, how to derail trains, how to make the occupying forces' lives an absolute nightmare. Now, her daughter, Jennifer, thought, she might be losing it a bit in her final days. But then when we started talking to her about Section 7, some stories from her childhood started to make sense. So, for example, she remembers in the in the 50s standing in her hallway as a pots and pans salesman had come to the door and her mother had opened the door and the salesman was quite aggressive in his sales patter and put his foot in the door to stop Irene shutting it. And the next thing that Jennifer remembers is the pots and pans salesman sailing through the air with pots and pans tumbling everywhere because... Now she can see that her mother had performed like an unarmed combat move on this guy. And, and that is amazing. I know, I know. And Jennifer's saying it's so out of character for her mother. This memory had just stuck with her because, you know, her mother was a, wouldn't say boo to a goose type of lady. And, but suddenly this chap was flying through the air. And the whole point of SIS recruiting women is basically the mistake that the pots and pans salesman had made, that he does not suspect a shy retiring housewife to be able to do that. And that's exactly why they recruited people like Jennifer. They also recruited a lady called Priscilla Ross from Hornchurch. Now, Priscilla said that very similar things to Jennifer and obviously in a very separate part of the country, Hornchurch in Essex. She was taught how to make Molotov cocktails, how to garrote, how to derail trains, how to assassinate German officers. Her base was under a church in Hornchurch with a tombstone that if you move the top kind of swiveled over and revealed an entrance underneath the church. So I've been in touch with uh, the church in Hornchurch and um, had, a, from their perspective, a weird conversation about whether they had any moving tombstones in their graveyard, which they did not. But they did say that they had just uh, found a space under the church, which they had not uh, known about, and they couldn't find an entrance. So, so something else for us maybe to go and look at. Buddy, we're going, we're going to Hornchurch, no, no question about that. So what you're saying is here, there was there is a network, people still living among us today because they were young, they were boys and girls, who are trained killers, saboteurs, and resistors. And because they never got the, the balloon never went up, they never got the call, they just went and lived the rest of their lives and never told a soul. Correct, absolutely. So for example, Peter Atwater and Matlock knew of two other cells near him in Matlock. So potentially this could be absolutely huge. And, and they didn't really even know who they were working for. So at the end of the war, Peter was part of the local history society and he told his story and, and had started to read about the auxiliary units and presumed that's what he was in. And in fact, to the extent that there's the blue plaque above what was the draper's shop saying this was a auxiliary units radio cell, but it wasn't. So Peter didn't know what he was in at all. That's how secret it is. The people who are in it didn't even know what they're in. And, and most of them, because they weren't called upon, said absolutely nothing. There's another example from Yorkshire of a, of a mother who passed away fairly recently, who was high up in the WI in Yorkshire. She told her family that she was responsible for driving, using the WI as a cover, for driving around Yorkshire. And she used very specific terminology delivering explosives and weapons to caves all around Yorkshire. So there is, there's so much tantalising information out there. We know relative, well, 
very little, essentially, as to the size of this group. And also what their objectives were. What does success look like for Section 7? Because the resistance in mainland Europe had Britain as a island of hope, of a platform from which liberation can come from. If Britain had fallen and we were occupied... Is the US going to get involved in the war? If so, the Atlantic Ocean is a big old gap between us and liberation. What does success look like for a ongoing resistance? I'd say it's, and again, very much suicidal, but just talks about the bravery of these people. So obviously, one of the first things I want to say to listeners is, if any of this rings true, you need to get in touch with Andy, because it must be very frustrating for you. This We're in the last months and years of, of being able to talk to these people, if they were 14 or so in... 1940, they're going to be mid to late 90s. So just check, just check that your nan is not like Irene and can actually throw a pots and pan salesman uh, <laughs> down the footpath. Because the more you talk about this, do you still get people coming forward? Oh, all the time, all the time. So we've just had some audio through from a chap in Exeter near me. He was talking about his time in the fleet air arm, uh, which he joined in 41, I think. But before that, uh, he was part of some resistance group within Exeter itself, within the city, so not an auxiliary unit, talking about his uh, this cell he was in in Alfington, where he was part of a cell with four other guys. And that literally came through yesterday of more information coming through. Obviously, he's, he's passed away, sadly, but just those tantalising shreds of evidence, which then links up with other bits that we've heard from the country, just starting to put together this picture of huge pre-prepared post-occupation resistance. You know, if the auxiliary units and the special duties branch change our perception of, of Britain this time, then this should blow it out of the water because this is utterly brutal. This is training 14, 15, 16-year-old boys and girls how to be assassins. This is teaching mothers how to derail train. This is a huge change in the perception of Britain at, at this point as I actually probably more to reality of utterly brutal, utterly ruthless uh, in the execution of the defence of this country. And what about the archives? Presumably this stuff has been, the government has declassified this stuff now. Is there a paper trail here that you can exploit? Nope. <laughs> I don't know whether they've gone for a, a longer period of the Official Secrets Act just because the people they were recruiting were so young. But there is, as far as we can see, there's nothing in the archives. There's the piece by Keith Jeffrey, who obviously had access to official MI6 content uh, that's in the official histories. And actually, interesting, Section 7 officially of MI6 is the accountancy arm. So they've hidden this resistance group under an accountancy arm. So even if you're looking up Section 7 MI6, you're just going to get accounts rather than ruthless resistors. So we are very much looking for that paper trail because it has to be paid for. There has to be some kind of paper trail somewhere, but we, we have yet to find it yet. Are we confident that you think you will one day? I hope so. Wouldn't that be amazing? I'm not sure when it will be released if it is, but we'll certainly keep searching because I'd just love to get an idea of just the number of people involved in this. Because as I said, it's got the potential to be thousands and thousands. I mean, the the auxiliary units was, we think, about six and a half thousand and the special duties branch about four and a half thousand. But this is the potential to be double that at least. So yeah, much more than that. So this is huge potential to be an amazing story. And wouldn't it be great to get the last survivors some recognition? Because there's been zero acknowledgement, zero recognition, nothing at all so far. Absolutely nothing. Yeah, no, no, exactly right. The only thing, as I said, is this three paragraphs in the official history of MI6 kind of hidden. Absolutely nothing from anyone. And actually, you know, it took years and years for the auxiliary units to get recognised. It was only in the mid 
2000s that we managed to get them permission to walk past the cenotaph on Remembrance Sunday, for example. So, and that's the auxiliary units, which has essentially been in the public eye since David Lamp wrote that first book about it in 1968. And <laughs> There's certainly no medal for any of these groups. None of these groups were officially given the Defence Medal, unlike the Home Guard. So, yeah, absolutely no recognition at all, which is really awful, considering the sacrifice these guys were prepared to make in, in this country's hour of need. Well, thank you so much for coming on talking about it. Uh, our adventures hopefully will continue. Tell people where they can get hold of all your books and research, and indeed get hold of you if they have a relative who they think might have been involved. I'm at Chats1 on Twitter. My book that's out at the moment is called Britain's Secret Defences, which talks about all these groups. So, so go and grab that if you fancy learning a bit more. Um, but yeah, any, basically any story, we have to rely on gossip and rumour and family stories. So, so anything that you thought at the time was a bit strange or you thought granddad or grandma was going a bit delally in their old age, get in touch because that, <laughs> that is what we rely on. And that kind of pieces it all together. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. People can go back and listen to that previous podcast we did where we searched for and indeed found, strangely, a little bit of World War II history in the New Forest. And there's going to be more adventures coming. So stay tuned, folks. Andy, thanks for coming back on. Thanks, Dan. My pleasure. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout. <laughs>